quick note before you start journey. Firstly, this podcast is an immersive listening experience that is best heard through headphones. And secondly, a new episode will be released every week from now until the conclusion of this season. This will be at least eight episodes, plus bonuses for Brevity Plus subscribers on Apple. Subscribers will get access to each episode a week early, plus ad-free listening and exclusive bonus episodes, like episode minus one, which follows an amazing and at times hilarious few days with me and Ashley prior to me starting the trek. But remember, the podcast will always remain free for all listeners if you're happy to wait the extra week and you're not interested in the bonus content. If you are interested in photos and video from this season, you'll find a post for every episode on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ. Thanks for the support, and I hope you enjoy. The purpose of this podcast is to inspire, to quietly encourage, to inform, and to relax. Journey is a podcast that documents my experiences through some of the world's most interesting adventures that you can personally achieve. You'll hear everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All audio is recorded by me, on location, and is designed to be an immersive experience. Best listen through headphones. I want you to feel like you're right there with me. So expect to be enveloped with the sounds of nature, the roar of the river, and the sounds of stones crunching underfoot. But most of all, I aim to inspire you to get out and experience these things for yourselves. I really hope you enjoy. This is Journey, Everest Base Camp. If you ask someone what the most important thing in life is, you'll get a range of answers. Health, family, money. But for me, it's none of these things. I believe the answer to this question is time. Time is the most important asset you have. It allows you the opportunity to experience the world and fill your life with the things you hold dear. But it doesn't care if you're rich, poor, black, white, whether you're asleep or awake. It depreciates with absolute disregard of your desires. All my life, I've always had a constant internal battle with myself and time. That I'm not doing enough. That my time will run out. And I haven't seen or done enough with those precious years, hours and minutes that I've been fortunate enough to have. You never know when today might be your last. 
It's been this personal doomsday clock that has driven me throughout my life to constantly challenge myself, both physically and mentally. To never let myself get too comfortable. Life shouldn't be easy. Be insatiably curious. Remember, the harder the climb, the better the view. There was a time in my life when I wanted to climb mountains. I actually climbed a few in New Zealand, my home country. One thing I quickly learned was that as much as I loved the achievement and exhilaration of summiting, mountain climbing is both incredibly difficult and incredibly dangerous. A pursuit where at times equal parts luck and skill are necessary to stay alive. And it's this aspect of the sport that caused me to pause and reflect. Is the personal reward justified against the risk of death? And for me, the answer was, maybe not. For now, at least. But every year, there would come a time when I would ask myself the same question. If you could... Would you climb Everest? My answer used to be yes. But each year, as I watched the news and the number of climbers increased, my answer wavered. To be honest, I wasn't sure. Watching the hundreds of, let's be honest, fairly amateur climbers with deep pockets line up on the Hillary Step every year, impatiently waiting their turn, I wondered at their motivations. And if in those moments, they felt it was all worth it. It's nagged at me privately for a long time. How would I feel? I felt the only way to know for sure would be to see it for myself. To look up and see that. And know in the pit of my stomach, in my heart of hearts, whether it's worth dying for. November 3rd, 2022, and I'm on a small 12-seater plane flown by the local Nepalese carrier Summit Air. My flight time today, 18 minutes. My destination, one of the world's highest and most dangerous airports, the Tenzing Hillary Airport in Lukla, Nepal. My first stop on what is considered to be one of the most difficult treks in the world the two-week climb to Mount Everest Base Camp in the Himalayas. Well, it's almost my first stop. You see, I started this journey three days ago in the same place everyone does. Nepal's famous capital city. Kathmandu. Situated between China to the north and India to the south, east and west is the landlocked South Asian country Nepal. And near its centre is the historical and beating heart of the country. The bustling city of three million that never sleeps. Kathmandu, which is the gateway to the Nepal Himalayas. Home to eight of the world's ten highest mountains. Including the world's highest, and my target, Mount Everest. 
any trek to Everest officially begins at Kathmandu Airport, which will be likely to be unlike any other airport you've ever experienced. For a city of 3 million, the airport itself is a pretty basic brick building, which I can only describe as chaotic. I arrived just after midnight, exhausted, but incredibly excited. It was only as the plane was landing that it really started hitting home why I was here. And you couldn't wipe the smile off my face. Once I'd navigated through the cash-only visa desk, it was simply a matter of finding a working ATM machine and booking a local taxi to my hotel, the Shangri-La Boutique. And it was here that the adventure truly began. After two hours driving round in circles down dark back alleys, we finally found the hotel. And I accidentally proceeded to undertip my grumpy taxi driver. In hindsight, I later realised I'd given the wrong notes. I crash out onto my bed, a smile, ear to ear. If you find your way to Kathmandu with an eye on any trek, the place you're going to want to book your accommodation is Tarmel, which must quite literally be the trekking capital of the world. It's from here that virtually every trekker or climber launches their expedition into the Himalayas, be it to Everest, Annapurna, or any of the other world-famous peaks in Nepal's treasure chest. And if you're looking for a great place to stay, I can't more highly recommend the Shangri-La Boutique Hotel in Tamil. Hosted and owned by the most brilliantly entertaining and affable Keshab, who makes it his responsibility to personally welcome every guest. And if you're up for it, that will include a sampling of a Nepalese beer and some great chat. Personally, the greatest joy I get from travelling is meeting local people, and taking the time to really get to know them will enhance your experience more than anything you can ever pay for. After I'd learned how Keshab invented the local word for cheers, we chatted about all things Nepal, Keshab's extensive travels around the world, and also the tragic effect COVID had on this part of the world, where despite extensive lockdowns, there was no government support. One thing about Keshab, and to be honest, most Nepalese people, is that despite the nature of what they might be saying or doing, everything comes with a smile and a laugh. Okay. Okay. Happy <laughs> Now we just go. Oh man, it's good. It's good beer. Ah. Strong. But nobody understands this, this eye cringe. Because in Nepali we don't have any sounds uh, like uh, cheers, you know? Oh, you made that? Yeah, this I made. <laughs> this <is> my <laughs> private, okay? Meaning, <laughs> meaning is be good. Oh, be good. <laughs> I like that. Zoyos. Because everyone asking what's called Nepali cheers, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, so better Zoyos. Zoyos. <laughs> In a vast majority of Western countries throughout the world, there was government support for businesses that were forced to close their doors as the result of lockdowns during COVID. In Nepal, at least in the case of Keshab's hospitality business, this was not the case. 
and it was only because of his other handicraft business that he was able to survive. During our conversation, Kishab would go on to tell me that not only was he unable to open his doors for 20 months, but he let those who became trapped in the country at that time stay on, completely free. It's something that I would encounter again and again in Nepal, and captures the hearts of all who visit. It's their kind and generous spirit, despite the circumstances, whatever they may be. Myself, uh, I have never been to school in my life. I never studied, you know, uh, because um, I came early years, like uh, when I was nine years old, um, uh, yeah, to you know, to work, you know, I make money because I have a family. My family quite, um, you know, you know, big family and um, difficult, you know. I can't see that, you know, and um, so I cannot see that. I, I just come here for work, and uh, yeah, I did work uh, with some rich man house. As a cleaner, you know, cleaning, garden, water, and uh, yeah, making a tea, <laughs> like this. So, uh, and then, um, yeah, I, after that, uh, I get license, driving license. Then I start to drive, prepare taxi in airport. Then you do it, yeah. Yeah, then, you know, while well, uh, driving taxi, so I learn English from there, you know. So, <laughs> then I learned different business, you know, like a handicraft business. I'm doing handicraft business also. Handicraft? Yeah, Nepalese handicraft. Yeah. Also like I export to Japan. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm doing this since uh, 14 years. And, uh, yeah, slowly I learned handicraft business, uh, yeah, and hotel business, you know, uh, many things, like uh, trekking business, all business I do now, you know, so, yeah. you know, even the cargo, courier, everything. So, mm. yeah, that's how... But uh, because of uh, taxi, I drive around 15 years. And in this time, I learned so many things, you know. Yeah. <laughs> in 15 years, you know. I learned English. I learned many business, different business. Otherwise, this uh, lockdown time, this I am renting this building, you know. Yeah. I, I must have to pay rent, you know. Yeah. No customer. I close for uh, 20 months, no? But uh, if I don't have my background business, so I cannot stay here, you know. Yeah. So I lost more than $80,000 in COVID, wow. you know. So now it's really recovering slowly. Yeah. You know. Did the government, did they support businesses? No, no, no. Nobody supported. You, did you not get any money from the no, government? No, no, nothing. Nothing, nothing. We wow. just paid. Because government already poor. They always say they don't have money. You know, they don't complete any um, um, project, any plan, you know, the ongoing project, you know. They don't complete. They're just uh, extending, you know, the date. Yeah, <laughs> and asking means. more money with the government. Like this, you know, this tender system, it's very, very bad. Sadly, the other thing that became very clear in my month in Nepal was the obvious inefficiency of the government to get even the most basic projects completed. And this does not go unnoticed. Yet in the people I meet, instead of this creating a drive to try and cause change, instead, there's a feeling of apathy. The thought that no matter what they do, the government is and will always remain corrupt and inefficient. But amazingly, this doesn't affect their spirit, and they certainly are not ones to complain. Keshab can talk for hours, and we do, in hysterics as he regales myself and a few others of his overseas escapades. Eventually, he asks me about my plans for my trek, and as it turns out, he knows a lot. 
When I'd initially planned my trek, I'd settled on the idea that I was going to undertake the trip solo, primarily due to the fact I would be documenting the whole trek on both film and audio, and I didn't want to be a hindrance to others. And also, I didn't want to feel rushed when it came to getting good shots. However, after meeting Keshab, he presented me with the option of a guide. Not only does he own a hotel, but he also has a successful trekking company where he employs up to 20 local guides. My plan had been the more conservative, standard Everest base camp route. However, Kesha was presenting me with the option of the longer, more difficult, but far more impressive Gokyo reroute. And as it turned out, another client staying at the hotel, a young Dutch woman, had also planned a solo trek, but had instead decided to take this option with Keshab. So this meant going together and sharing one guide would half the cost, making it really quite affordable, and it seemed silly not to. So that was it. I'd now be doing the 15-day Gokyo reroute, which would take us via the beautiful Gokyo Lakes and then the famous Chola Pass before going on to Everest. Quite simply, if you have the time and the ability, this is widely considered the best Everest trek available. Perfect. We say our goodnights, and I stumble off to bed, smiling from ear to ear. I have a full day to prepare before we would leave. And of course, As we're heading into one of the most inhospitable environments on the planet, there is a list of gear required. And if you need anything, absolutely anything to do with trekking or climbing, you're going to find it in Tarmel. So the following morning, after my fantastic breakfast in the hotel, I make my way the couple minute walk round the corner to pick up what I need. Okay, so we're in Kathmandu, and the area that I'm in right now is actually called Tarmil. And this is basically the centre for tourists, and the other thing, it's probably the trekking capital of the world if you're looking for things that you're going to take trekking. So I've picked up some stuff now, but there's a few more things I need, so let's wander around some of these shops and see if we can find what I'm looking for. Hey, uh... Try that one? Okay. Oh, it's got some weight. Alright, that jacket's got a bit of weight to it. If you're planning a trip to Everest Base Camp, or you're just interested to know the gear I took in my pack, how useful it was, and what I might leave out if I went again, plus any other useful information. You'll find all of this in the final bonus episode of this podcast. I can promise you this will be of massive use to you if you're planning your trip. Um, So that's the good thing here. I managed to pick pretty much everything I needed up from one or two stores. Uh, So now I'm going to go drop this off, grab something to eat, and um, yeah, start packing the bag to leave in the morning. 
as you can see here, you've got to be careful you don't get hit by a motorbike. Alright, so it's the night before leaving on the trek. Uh, we were supposed to be leaving tomorrow on a plane to Lukla from Kathmandu, but it turns out for some reason the plane might not be flying tomorrow, so we've just been told last minute that there's a chance that we're going to have to get up at 1am this morning to catch a bus to a different location somewhere five hours away um can't think of the name off the top of my head but we'll go from there to fly to Lukla um so yeah I've been around Tamil today Tamil today and uh got the last few things I need the guide's been through and had a look at everything and uh yeah so I'm just starting the packing process now it's always that thing when you pack your bag and you've got everything lying out and you're trying to think, okay, what's the thing I'm going to need the least to put at the bottom? Um, yeah. So let's get all the stuff in here and um, see where we're looking, see how the bag looks, uh, what's the time now. So it's, shit, it's already four o'clock. Um, but yeah, get everything in the bag, see how it's all feeling. And then um, I've got everything charging. Obviously, there's very little power um, on this trek. You can get it in some spots, apparently, but you have to pay, and it's it's very minimal. So I've got a 20,000 milliamp or milliar power bank, which is not too bad. I should get a few phone charges and stuff out of that. Not that I'm really going to need those, but for my camera and other bits and pieces, I expect I will need some charge. Yeah. Okay, right, let's uh, keep packing up. So, I mean, I don't know if it's a stupid question, but why can't you drive to Lukla directly? There's no road. There's just no road. That's Nidijan. He's our Nepalese guide, who will take us all the way from Kathmandu to Everest, and hopefully back again. Yeah. Very soon, it may take like a few more years. After that, yeah. we can drive up to there. <coughs> I'm planning something different to Lukla. Oh, From yeah. here, we should make a rail until Lukla. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just surprising if it's only a 15 minute flight. Yeah. I guess it's not a, not a long road. Not, not a long distance. Even from here also. Like half an hour is not that far, right? Mm. Yeah. I guess it's kind of good though that there is no road, so it keeps it separate, yeah. so people can't just drive there. And the road would be nice because lots of people can travel their rest yeah. easily. Yeah. Do you want that? Do you want lots of people to go up there? Yeah. I mean, like if we make. If we build a good road until Lukla, I think there will be more tourists than now, maybe double. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because everyone wants to see the Everest. Mm. Yeah, everyone, everyone wants to be in the Everest base camp, so...
It's 2am and I find myself careening along the bumpiest road I've ever seen in the smallest car I've ever been in. My guide and trekking buddy are now fast asleep. I've never been someone able to sleep while others are driving. Trust issues maybe. Something I should work on. Although in this case, I'll let myself off, I think. As we swing around another hairpin turn about a meter from a crumbling cliff which falls away somewhere far below into the darkness. We're on the road from Kathmandu to Ramachap Airport. About a five hour drive. Our goal, to catch a flight to the most dangerous airport in the world, Lukla. Just surviving this drive will be a start, I think, as the car stalls out again in another giant pothole. I envy the others as their heads bob around blissfully snoring. Personally, I wasn't able to get to sleep last night till about 11pm, so I'm bloody tired too. However, there's something peaceful about just the noise of the car engine and the crunch of the loose gravel as our headlights guide us up and around a winding mountain, which has clearly been victim to landslides in the monsoon season just gone. Our driver suddenly decides it's time for a smoke break, only five minutes from Ramachat, so pulls over in the pitch black on the side of this mountain. We get out and stretch our legs, taking in the stars and just the feeling of being there. Right now. I wander over to the edge and notice a small ramshackle home, only 30 metres away. Up here, in the middle of nowhere. It's about 4am, and the whole family is up and laughing, starting to go about their daily life. Uncomplicated, but happy. We could learn so much, I think. Oh, shit. So we're all cramming into this airport that we've just... Well, I'll call it an airport, but in quotation marks. So hopefully we're on the first flight. Not quite like any airport I've seen before. We arrive in Ramachap Airport in darkness. And immediately, the feeling changes to one of semi-organised chaos. There are only three small airlines that run flights into Lukla Airport. These planes are small, only carrying about 12 passengers each. But it's crucial that they're powerful for their size, as Lukla runway is only 527 metres long. A typical commercial runway is 2,500 metres plus. There is no margin for error. Taking off or landing at Lukla Airport is a one attempt affair. At the end of the runway, you'll be greeted with a cliff which plunges hundreds of metres down into the valley below. The airport isn't known as the most dangerous in the world for no reason. There have been many accidents at Lukla and the surrounding areas, and seven fatal ones which have killed over 50 people. The most recent crash being in 2010, when all 14 on board were killed when a plane crashed into a hill due to poor visibility. Due to its high altitude position, 
conditions at the airport are quite turbulent. In fact, about 50% of all scheduled flights in the afternoon are cancelled because of poor visibility. To be honest, I knew it was called the most dangerous, but I never looked up the stats. In my mind, there are some things in life you just can't let control your decisions. And worrying about the obscure chance of a plane crash is one of them. Although, arriving to find that our plane was on the tarmac with parts lying all over the place and a bunch of workers underneath banging it with hammers didn't fill me with much confidence. None of those? No, no, no. Thank you. No, no lighter. Boarding pass. Awesome, thank you very much. So I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, gone! No! <laughs> we successfully got through the boarding. So where do we go to the terminal? What terminal are we? Terminal 1. <laughs> terminal 1. Just sit now. Okay. A bit spooky. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Hello. I can see our plane here. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's it there. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's still so dark. I know. What are they working on? That's a bit disconcerting. They are checking. You know, <laughs> 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 you see that they're like, ding, 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 smacking it. So meteor. Well, it only has to go for 15 minutes. Flying into Lukla is absolutely notorious for delays. And we were getting a taste of it before our trek had even begun. We sat and waited as the other planes came and went, came and went, shuttling other eager trekkers to Lukla to begin their two-week journeys. The flight is the shortest I've ever taken, at only 18 minutes, yet carries a pretty hefty 150 US dollar price tag. We watched as the mechanics banged away for a couple hours before eventually, finally, a backup plane from Kathmandu arrived and we were on our way. Right, we've finally been given a different plane. It's boarding time. Finally, getting on the plane. We are ready. Everyone has their own reason. They make the trek to the world's highest mountain. An adventure. A challenge. 
to see Everest, to remember a lost friend. And I have mine. Over the next 15 days, I'm going to cover 150 kilometers of the highest terrain in the world and experience the greatest challenge of my life. But as my tiny plane ascends into these towering valleys, I get the sense that this journey will be something more than what I came for. As the wheels touch down in Lukla, I'm pinching myself that I'm really here. But I'm also sensing something different. I'm just not sure what the feeling is. But all I know is the answers lie somewhere up there. In the clouds. Journey is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced, and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. You'll find a post with photos and videos dedicated to this episode on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and on our Facebook page, Brevity Studios NZ. You'll find details about this trek in the show notes of every episode. For ad free listening, bonus episodes, and early release, you can subscribe to our Brevity Plus channel on Apple Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of this episode. On the next episode of Journey, Everest Base Camp. We literally just landed in the most dangerous airport in the world. And uh, yeah, it was a, a great flight. Awesome views of the Himalayas and Mount Everest as well. Well, we've just reached the famous Hillary Bridge, and I see why it's famous now. I'm not sure exactly how high it is. It looks to be about 70 metres, 100 metres high. Uh, It's just a swing bridge. There's nothing supporting it other than the cables you're standing on. Uh, It's quite dramatically beautiful. The river flows underneath it. You can hear behind me. This is going to be something. Let's go.